Welcome to Brand Nevet. We are delighted to be chatting to Alex Arnold today from the John Templeton Foundation. Alex, would you like to tell us a bit about the foundation? So, as far as a little bit about the foundation, we were founded in 1987 by Sir John Templeton, who at the time of founding the foundation was most well known for his work as a pioneer in mutual funds market and emerging market investments, but who also in the early 70s, I think 1972, endowed the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, whose first awardee was Mother Teresa. And it was set according to the terms of his endowment to be more valuable than the Nobel Prize. I think the value is somewhere around 1 million pounds for awardees. And that's the program that we continue to do to this day. But so we've been around for a while and we have a kind of distinctive mission, which in many ways reflects the idiosyncrasies and the eccentricities of our founder, Sir John Templeton. So actually it might be helpful to sort of talk a little bit about Sir John's own background and history because it helps understand why the foundation does what it does. So Sir John was born in Winchester, Tennessee in 1912. He was raised in a sort of middle-class family, formative event in his lifetime, like many people who were born during that period of time was the Great Depression, beginning in the late 1920s through the 1930s. And it impressed upon him the value of thriftiness, the value of a dollar saved, a dollar invested. And, you know, largely that's probably responsible for the success that he had as an investor. But he also grew up in a deeply spiritual environment. So he himself was a lifelong member of Presbyterian Church in the United States, but his mother, Vela Templeton, was deeply influenced by this American religious movement going back to the early 19th century called the New Thought Movement which very much emphasized the immediate accessibility of the divine, sort of the power of positive thinking, faith healing, these sorts of things. And yet you actually have similar sort of shoots of that American religious movement still around with us today. I don't know if you've ever seen people on Instagram, for example, talking about manifesting, right? That's an idea that has its roots in the new thought movement in the United States. So his mother deeply influenced by that. And of course she impressed some of that mindset, some of those ideas, the vibe as kids say nowadays on Sir John. So Sir John grew up in a, a deeply spiritual uh, environment, grew up also during a period of tremendous change in the world. Um, you had the quantum revolution in physics shortly after his birth, you had <laughs> two very brutal world wars. Over the course of his life, you saw the rapid change in medicine. You had the discovery of antibiotics. You had the discovery of nuclear fission. You had, you know, globalization. You had all sorts of real significant changes in the way that human beings live and work. And for Sir John, I think he would say that while there was such really horrible things that happened in the early and mid 20th century, on the whole, for Sir John, the theme for the 20th century was one of progress in science, in medicine, in technology, in standards of living. The economic historian Deidre McCloskey talks about what she calls the great enrichment. And I think Sir John would have endorsed something like that. You know, since the 18th century, all the way through to our present time, there's been enormous progress in human life, except in one area, 
according to Sir John. And this is progress in what Sir John variously calls spiritual matters or, or matters of religion. And I think it's important to recognize that what Sir John meant by spiritual matters or religion is actually much broader than what people typically think of when they think about spirituality or when they think about religion. For Sir John, spirituality would encompass things like a sense of meaning and purpose in one's life, moral progress, ethical progress, progress just in terms of being good human beings. It also involved spiritual progress in the more conventional sense of learning more about fundamental spiritual realities, whether that be God or other sorts of spiritual realities. One other aspect of the upbringing of his mother kind of impressed upon him, and this is from certain strands of the New Thought movement. There are modes of Sir John's thought and writing where he sounds very pantheistic or panentheistic. So one metaphor that shows up in his writings is that of the ocean and the wave. And I actually just learned that this is a metaphor that shows up in certain Vedic religions, South Asian religious traditions for understanding the relationship between individuals and, and fundamental metaphysical reality. So there is also that kind of strand of thought in Sir John's work and his published work. And if you kind of got a pantheistic leaning or inclination, it's not a crazy inference to draw that just by studying the world and learning about its fundamental structure, learning about how it's developed over time and learning about how different parts of it have developed, especially for Sir John, you know, the rise of rational intelligence, rational beings like human beings is a significant watershed in at least the way Sir John thinks of the evolution of the cosmos over time. So if you're kind of a panentheist, it's not crazy to think that by studying the world and studying different local manifestations of interesting capacities and powers in that world actually just is a kind of theology, right? And, and so Sir John uses this phrase, uh, humility theology or humility in theology to connote the study of the world, uh, but employing a particular sort of mindset, one of humility and openness and curiosity, especially towards the potential for the world to have a spiritual aspect in some sense. So that's kind of the intellectual context in which the foundation's mission was kind of forged. And a lot of the values, especially of the mindset, that Sir John was really keen on, that mindset of humility and curiosity and openness to what the strangeness of the world really sort of carries over into the work that we like to support. And so the way we communicate our mission on the website is basically in terms of about three different topical areas of interest for the foundation in our science and the big questions funding area. So we're interested you know, supporting researchers to conduct investigations into the fundamental structure and constituents of reality. We're interested also in supporting researchers to investigate the nature of persons and personal well-being, what it is for individuals to live good lives, to live well. And we're also interested, and this is something that we embrace and that makes us controversial in certain circles, but it is part of the mission. We're interested in what we call sort of progress-oriented theology. And by theology, we actually mean something pretty expansive, not just theology done from the perspective of orthodox or even heterodox Christianity, but we've funded work in Jewish 
theology, Islamic theology. I was at just at a conference in Birmingham as part of our global philosophy religion project, which is headed up by Eugene Nunn. And that conference was on the topic of immortality and life after death. And it brought to bear perspectives from various Hindu philosophical religious traditions, Buddhist philosophical traditions, even some Chinese philosophical traditions. And so when we talk about progress-oriented theology, we mean a theology in a very broad sense. You might even just talk about progress-oriented wisdom traditions, right? Progress-oriented research and from the perspective of different wisdom traditions. And it's under that sort of heading where we're famous for a lot of work on science and religion or science and theology. But so yeah, in summary, at least in the science of big questions area, our interests are, you know, supporting research on the fundamental structures of reality, supporting research on the nature of persons and personal well-being and flourishing and living well, and also progress-oriented research that draws on the ideas and the concepts and the theories of the different world's wisdom traditions. So my philosophical ears pricked up when you mentioned pantheism. So I'm a pantheist and we recently had a guest on the show, Joe Schmidt, who runs his own podcast. And we had a nice long debate about pantheism, which is quite hard to do. There's not a lot of pantheists out there. I mean, there probably are plenty of pantheists out there, but not within analytic philosophy. There's very little on it. So it was great to have the discussion and going through your list of projects that you've funded in the past. There's one that, that caught me that's on a very much related topic on cosmology, the directions that one might take in cosmology. And I think that your project leader there is Smink. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the project. Yeah. So Chris Smink is a philosopher of science and does a lot of work in philosophy of physics and philosophy of cosmology at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. And he, along with a team at UC Irvine, you know, the prime representative there is James Owen Weatherall, led up this project to continue to establish as a vibrant subdiscipline within philosophy of physics, the philosophy of cosmology. Um, so this project, the sort of new directions in philosophy of cosmology project that I think you're referring to builds upon the work of some of some previous grants that we've supported. Some of them, not in my portfolio, some of them in the math and physical sciences portfolio, but it's been you know, included work by people working on fine tuning in cosmology working on the fundamental laws in cosmology, but their project in particular was snakes project. That is, was keen to sort of interrogate certain practices of inference, certain theoretical presuppositions and certain methods that are employed in physical cosmology. So I'm no expert on the physics of cosmology and not only am I no expert, but I'm maximally far away from being an expert when it comes to physical cosmology. So that's the disclaimer. But to my understanding, at least, you know, cosmology presents some very interesting challenges as a scientific enterprise. So first of all, you can't run anything like controlled experiments, right? Because there's only a single cosmos. Well, single cosmos, at least that we have access to, given the energy levels that we can concoct, right? So what we end up having to do a lot of, a big part of how cosmology gets done is by creating these computer simulations and then seeing the extent to which the outputs of these simulations match observations that we make using various telescopes that we've got both on Earth and in orbit. And so that, that leads to lots of interesting epistemological issues. So when you're, of course, writing a computer simulation, you're setting up different parameters. 
you might worry, well, how do I determine what values to put for these different parameters? How do I even determine what parameters to build into my computer simulation in the first place? And to what extent should I worry about cheating in the following sense, fine tuning my simulations so that they fit the observed data really closely. So that's just one of many issues that that project in particular was aimed at sort of uncovering. They're actually both Smink and Weatherall are writing a book on sort of philosophical issues that that cosmology raises. But the other aspect of the project, and this is kind of a common feature of a lot of the grants in my portfolio, is sort of, for lack of a better word, community building or capacity building, right? You know, philosophy as a discipline is huge and it does have its sort of main research projects that draw a lot of attention, draw a lot of prestige and draw a lot of funding. But you know, on occasion there are either nascent subdisciplines or in some cases, subdisciplines that don't yet exist that are nonetheless still aimed at answering really valuable and important questions. And so a lot of what we end up doing with our funding is sort of taking these communities in embryo and helping nurture them so that they can kind of stand on their own two feet relative to the larger ecosystem of what's going on in philosophy. So some of what happened in that philosophy the cosmology project was basically aimed at community building, helping create a group of scholars who sort of self-identifies working on a particular set of issues and allowing them to carve out space within the discipline so that their research program could thrive. But yeah, that's a nice example of some of the funding that we do in philosophy and theology portfolio that treats issues concerning the fundamental structure and constituents of reality. So what's striking to me about a project like this is that it necessarily requires interdisciplinary work. So you're going to have people who are trained in physics and you're going to have people who are trained in the philosophy of science and that you have them interacting. To my mind, there's a sense in which it's a relay race. So the one set will do some of the work and then they say, well, I've now run out and I need the other set to do some of the work and you pass over the baton. But there must be an interesting moment in that passing to try and work out what are the barriers between these two areas. You know, philosophers are often quite fond of saying that whenever they get very good at something, philosophy splits and becomes something else. It becomes physics or it becomes psychology. How have you found practically that it works between the philosophers and the scientists? What are the things that are able to come out of the synergy and then working together? Your question is one that we sort of obsess about at the foundation, how to best foster good interdisciplinary collaboration. There's a paper by Nathan Ballantyne on epistemic trespassing. And the basic concern here is that there are many important questions that require the input of scholars working from a variety of different disciplines. The risk though, of trying to bring scholars from a variety of different disciplines is that people are ignorant of what's going on in other disciplines largely. And as a result, they can kind of get out over their skis in making claims or pronouncements about the more general set of issues that they're working on. That's kind of in a nutshell, one of the main concerns with epistemic trespassing. So we think about that question a lot. And so the model that you just laid out of a sort of relay race, that is one model for thinking about interdisciplinary interaction. And there are actually maybe two models implicit in the comments. So, you know, does the philosopher run the first leg and then the scientist takes over the second leg, or does the scientist run the first leg and then the philosopher takes over the second leg? So there's a kind of, there's a kind of temporal sequence of work that goes on. And 
at least in the projects that I've seen, both kinds of those relay models of interdisciplinary collaboration crop up. So it's a really good example of an area of research where both kinds of interdisciplinary collaboration show up is some of the work we funded on well-being and flourishing. So we had a grant a few years ago with Dan Habron at St. Louis University who wrote a book with, I think, one of my favorite philosophy book titles, The Pursuit of Unhappiness. Definitely not anything that would get on the New York Times bestseller list, but it's a great book. And what was interesting about that project is that, so well-being research, of course, has long history. I mean, you can go all the way back to Aristotle for sure, but even just recently, you know, people in economics, positive psychology have been working on how to measure well-being, how to improve well-being, what are the factors that contribute to well-being or inhibit it. And you now one model for thinking about how that research is played out is that, well, what happens first is that philosophers, uh, maybe theologians, they get together and they more or less define the concept or the construct of well-being in all of its different dimensions. And then they sort of hand that off to scientists who then go develop measures measure things and maybe run different kinds of interventions or controlled experiments to see whether or not the level of well-being goes up given certain intervention or goes down. Maybe they run large-scale observational studies as well to see the extent to which well-being correlates with other sorts of variables of interest. So that's one model of thinking about how philosophers might help the work of well-being. And Dan Habron co-wrote a paper, I think it was in published in 2016 in the British Journal of Philosophy of Science with Anna Alexandrova, who's really kind of one of the premier philosophers of the science of well-being. That kind of lays out one way of understanding this kind of philosophers do this theoretical work first, and then they pass it on to the scientists second. But you can also have the scientists do work and hand it off to the philosophers. So there is, of course, a lot of scientific research on well-being that then becomes a target for philosophical discussion, and in many cases, criticism, right? So as a kind of potted example, one of the dominant theories of well-being is that it's a matter of subjective life satisfaction or something like that. And of course, if you're a philosopher that has any kind of affinity for Aristotelian theories of human flourishing, you're going to have lots of objections to level against kind of uh, subjective life satisfaction view of well-being. So in that case, the science becomes a kind of target for discussion, in many cases, critical discussion. And I think you see that model show up in a lot of different areas when it comes to the interface of science and philosophy. Scientists do a lot of research, they collect a lot of data, they construct a lot of models, and they start saying things about what those models and that data might imply about the phenomenon in question. And then philosophers come and they say, eh, maybe you should pump the brakes or you're being ambiguous here. Or and I think this is a criticism that really shows up in the paper I just cited from Hebron and Alexandrova. You're not actually talking about the thing that you think you're talking about, right? So th those are kind of like serial models of collaboration between philosophers and scientists. But I actually think that another model is more of a this might be lost on some of your viewers. It might even be lost on you. But I was actually talking to a friend in England recently who was describing just the sheer confusion that he experiences when he watches American football. And for a novice viewer, there's a lot of stuff happening. And why it's happening, who knows? But oftentimes, if you really understand American football, you realize that 
there is a kind of orchestrated series of movements that's aimed at accomplishing a single objective. And I, and you know, again, this model might fall flat for people that don't understand American football, but here you have a lot of parallel activity happening that is intended to sort of support or buttress other activities that are happening sort of on the field of play. And I think actually some of the work that we've done in intellectual humility to support work or research on intellectual humility can be usefully or fruitfully modeled in terms of this kind of model of parallel activities, right? So as an example, you know, we funded a grant where philosophers and psychologists together collaborated, not to let the philosophers first define a construct and then hand it off to the scientists to develop measures, but actually to sort of jointly develop conceptualization, but also a measure of intellectual humility. So what actually the philosophers discovered is that they could define all sorts of really abstract concepts of intellectual humility that were of really no kind of scientific value because they were so abstract. And, you know, they were sort of forced to think about how are we going to operationalize this thing so that it can be measured. And then when they sort of experienced the process of developing these measures of intellectual humility, that actually fed back into their conceptualization of intellectual humility. But also the psychologists learned a lot too from the philosophers. They realized that, you know, sometimes in developing items for a particular measure, that the items could be interpreted in systematically ambiguous ways, which that's not great because then you get data that's very noisy, right? And so the philosophers would point this out during the process of measure development. So here you have something that's more like philosophers and scientists working in parallel collaboration with one another. There's no sharp division of labor, at least over time. All this stuff is sort of happening simultaneously. But, you know, there is still nonetheless a kind of division of labor. There's comparative advantage that's being manifested, right? But it's a different model for thinking about interdisciplinary collaboration, where it happens in parallel and not just serially. I imagine that's quite rare sort of in the real world, you know, outside of a funded project, because there's lots of real life cases of philosophers and scientists being quite antagonistic to one another. So, Neil deGrasse Tyson is very famous for saying that philosophers have no place in physics and science and that philosophy is just nonsensical gobbledygook. And then you get, of course, philosophers saying, well, some of the things that physicists are doing are unintelligible, incoherent. Their fundamental theories around quantum physics, for example, there's some big problems with defining the terms. So I'm guilty of this as well, not within physics, but I did my PhD on why social phenomena don't exist. So why the very stuff that social scientists talk about groups aren't there, they aren't real. And so you need to turf out the social sciences. So, you know, there's a lot of antagonism between philosophers and scientists generally, and it's quite admirable that you found a way to bring them together in a room without clawing each other's eyeballs off. Yeah. Well, it is, it's partly a matter of personality. There are just some people that are better suited to playing across the aisle as it were. There's also, I think, I don't actually know whether this is, how much this contributes, this kind of mindset that I'm about to describe. There's a tendency to want to essentialize different intellectual enterprises, whether it's talking very abstractly about science or whether it's talking very abstractly about philosophy or theology or the humanities, right? Doing so often elides a lot of the internal heterogeneity. 
and the structure and just the difference within those different disciplines or disciplinary umbrellas. And so the tendency to want to sort of essentialize an intellectual tribe as being a certain way and therefore being useless or bad or wicked or saintly and infallible, right? I wonder sometimes how much that contributes to the inability to kind of reach across disciplinary lines and engage in the kind of free and open commerce of ideas, concepts, theories. So some of our favorite conversations that we've had on the show relate to the meaning of life. So we had Thaddeus Metz on who wrote a book called Meaning in Life, and he tries to give an account of what would make your life meaningful. And he has a wonderful attack on the subjectivist notion. He says, imagine someone who says, well, I determine what makes my life meaningful purely based on my subjective will. And so what's meaningful for me is standing in queues for hours on end or keeping a very precise number of hairs on my head or re-watching episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And he says, it may be the case that the person enjoys that stuff, but they can't convert it into anything meaningful. And he thinks that the things that matter are pursuing truth, beauty, and goodness. We then had David Benito on the show who says, well, that may very well be the case that you can have these moments in your terrestrial life that are meaningful, but we've got to zoom out, you know, from the perspective of the universe, really what we have is a pale blue dot in the middle of nowhere with species that will eventually become extinct. In his view, the sooner the better. And he says, this cosmic meaning is a very hard to access. And we then produced a book called Conversations About the Meaning of Life between the two of them, and then they have conversations with each other. And it's interesting seeing people who have different views, who are able to disagree with each other very civilly, which is one of the virtues I think philosophers have, in a quest ultimately for truth, because it's one of the things that fundamentally matters to people is to say, what would make my life meaningful? What is the purpose of our lives? Have there been projects that the foundation's been involved in that gesture at some answers to those questions. Not pitched in precisely those terms. It is funny. You now, when I taught, when I was in graduate school at Notre Dame, as a fifth year graduate student, one thing you do is you teach your sort of first introductory philosophy class, right, to undergraduates. And because Notre Dame's Catholic school, all the undergraduates have to take philosophy. So what I did my first time through the class teaching it was kind of asked students just to gauge their perceptions of what philosophy is. I asked them, well, what do you think philosophy is? And a lot of them, maybe the majority of them said, well, it involves something like a reflection on the meaning of life or something like that. So you'd think, well, if there's any question that philosophers would address squarely and perennially and would take up a large proportion of what you see published in professional journals, it would be, you know, questions about or research on questions about the meaning of life. And it's not what you see when you survey the profession. And for better or for worse, it's not something that we've actually done a lot of funding in those terms. But it does get touched upon in some of our projects, and not even just within philosophy or theology, but in some of some of our sister departments within the foundation. So people working in the human sciences department, for example, they have historically supported a lot of research on sort of how people find purpose or meaning in their lives. I mean, but those are more descriptive questions than they are sort of normatively inflected. The well-being project that I referenced that was led up by Dan Abron also sort of touches on some of these sorts of issues. But as far as squarely addressing questions about the meaning of life, that's not something that we have done. 
though I have some ambitions and some hopes that our department will address some of those questions head on very soon. So just to point you in the direction of one initiative we just recently announced, if you go to our website, templeton.org, you'll see, should still be on the main page, but we just launched a funding competition for research proposals under the Spiritual Yearning Research Initiative, or SIRI, as we call it internally. And here, what we're trying to do is solicit constructive, philosophical, maybe theological work, work, but that also engages with the social sciences on how it is that people who don't find traditional religion or traditional wisdom traditions to really be live options for them anymore, how such people can nonetheless live meaningful, spiritually, in some sense, fulfilling lives. So my hope is that some of the projects that we end up funding out of this research initiative do touch on questions about whether life has a meaning in some cosmic sense, or whether eh, the best we can do is just find individual meaning for ourselves or meaning maybe as part of larger groups or it's all that fixed whether there are groups, right? So that's one area where I think we could tackle some questions pertaining to the meaning of life. Another thing, I'm in very early conversations with some researchers about looking at the ways in which different wisdom traditions around the world have addressed the question about the meaning or the purpose or the significance of human life. Because that is actually a question that seems to crop up in all of the world's wisdom traditions. And it's one for which they give our answers that we could sort of play off one another, compare, contrast, and hopefully have them put forward their best arguments for the truth of the matter. Now, that's a kind of, we would call that as kind of a spirit of adversarial collaboration. That's what I would sort of label the discussion between Metz and Benatars being a kind of adversarial collaboration. That is something the foundation's always keen to support because it is one way of operationalizing the value of uh, humility and open-mindedness and again, free exchange of competing perspectives. Yeah, it was really wonderful to talk to both of them. And we presented the views of the other to each. And they got a chance to respond in the book that we collaborated in writing with them. And it's quite a unique exchange. So it was wonderful to watch utter disagreement with total politeness. And as you say, humility, it was beautifully done. Yeah, I guess philosophers are uniquely placed in this way to do this. You've referred a few times to the Helbron project on well-being. I'm very curious what the results were. I want to know how to live my life. What is the right account? I mean, I have my own personal views on the question, whether they represent the views. I mean, the other part of the other challenge is kind of trying to summarize the work of that project. It's a very large project with several million dollars. And the centerpiece was actually a, a re-granting competition where scientists and philosophers and theologians could apply to the project to get money. And of course, when you have that happen, you have a profusion of different research streams and different arguments and different positions. I wish I could answer in a really straightforward way what the main results of the project was. I would actually say that, you know, this is not so much a first order result about the truth about well-being so much as it's more of a second order result about how it is we think about well-being and how it is we study well-being, which is that a lot of the science of well-being that's been published could benefit from a lot more engagement with philosophical investigation or 
not just the concept of well-being, but also the related concept, or in some views, the identical concept of what it is to live well and what it is to flourish. I think another, maybe this would be more of a first order result concerning well-being, but another maybe takeaway from this project is that there are lots of different ways to live well and to flourish. And, and so it turns out that giving kind of universally applicable advice is very difficult, which isn't to say that you can't, but it, it's going to be pitched at such a high level of abstraction that again, trying to operationalize it in your own life becomes a task that requires all actually, frankly, a lot of philosophical reflection, right? So, okay, like have good and healthy relationships. Okay. Like, you know, that's, that seems almost trite as an observation, but where the real work comes in is in thinking about, well, what does it mean in my particular situation, my context to have a good and meaningful relationship? How do I discern the relationships in my life that are good and meaningful and those that aren't? And there, you know, especially in scientific investigation that is much more contextually focused can give you more determinate information or relevance to thinking about those questions. But in terms of what I would want to say to you in particular, I don't have any. There's no result that I could sort of say, well, this product just says that in your case, you should do X, Y, or Z. So one of the recurring strands that we've had on the show are having guests talk about moral realism or anti-realism. One of those things that seems very important to know. Is it the case that's stitched into the fundamental nature of the universe is this idea that there are certain things that are wrong to do, that it's not just wrong to pluck out a baby's eyeballs because utilitarianism says so, or because, you know, virtue says so, but because the nature of reality is such that it is wrong and that those theories are best tracking reality. And we've had this debate between our guests and had these kind of conversations about, well, can we make such a strong claim that there are things that are necessarily wrong? Or is this some kind of matter of human practice or culture or belief is one of these things that merely evolves and you know has nothing to do with something fundamental about the universe? Are these the kinds of questions that you think that philosophers and scientists are well able to resolve? Or is it one of these things that we'll always be uh, stuck in the dark on? So I am a moral realist of sorts. If you were asking to give arguments for it, I'd be hard pressed to give like a knockdown deductive argument. It just seems pretty obvious to me that some things you just don't do and you shouldn't do. Now, I should say, at least with respect to the foundation's funding, we have supported a lot of work in moral psychology and sort of relatedly on the science and philosophy of free will. So we do touch on these sorts of topics and we don't fund directly on questions about moral realism, but we do touch on them in some of our in some of the projects that we funded. And that not actually just not even philosophy, but also some of the work in the life sciences department and talking about the evolution of or the natural history of morality and also in the human sciences department, looking at the psychology of moral judgment, for example. So can we make progress? What would it mean to make moral progress? There are kind of two different senses of moral progress. One is in just in terms of whether people are behaving. So holding fixed, you know, assume that moral realism is true. One way to make moral progress is for people to behave, act in greater and greater conformity with what the moral law or the moral facts demand. You know, another sense of moral progress, though, more on your analogy with understanding progress in the sciences, is just learning more moral truths, right? Or coming to an enhanced understanding of the moral nature of the universe. So actually, maybe there's a kind of germ of argument here for moral realism. It's something like this. There's moral progress, 
there's moral progress only if moral realism is true. Therefore, heavily of realism is true. This is a third sense that you might have in mind here in terms of moral progress, and that is actually making progress on the question of whether moral realism is true. If you look at some of the recent history of how the science of morality has been leveraged by certain philosophers, it has actually been leveraged in the direction of supporting some kind of moral anti-realism. So for example, Sharon Street's paper on basically purporting to show that, look, if you look at kind of the natural history of morality, and you look at kind of the strange nature of what moral judgments look like, that should move you in the direction towards being more of a moral anti-real. I mean, there are older versions of this argument, right? So in the 19th century, when you really had kind of the first wave of globalization, you had people meeting individuals from very different cultures, right? And seeing very different practices and seeing very different kinds of behaviors, both condoned and criticized. That sort of encouraged some people to adopt kind of moral relativist position, which I know there are some people that think moral relativism is a version of moral realism. But from my point of view, it just seems like a kind of moral anti-realism. So if you're a moral anti-realist, you might take the perspective that actually, as we look more at the science of sort of descriptive morality, when we look at how it is that moral judgments are formed, what kinds of factors they're sensitive to, when we look at the whole story of how morality evolved, its natural history, and we look at just the diversity of practices in different human cultures when it comes to certain kinds of behavior, that should encourage us maybe to be more of a moral anti-realist strand. Now, of course, there's maybe another way in which so the science can and has been leveraged in defense of moral realism. And it's actually to note that there are certain kinds of invariances when it comes to the descriptive morality of different kinds of cultures. So while at one level of analysis, what one culture does and another culture does looks completely at odds with one another, if we actually think about the mechanisms that might give rise to those different practices, they're motivated by very similar sorts of reasons. It's just that in different environments, they give rise to very different practices. So some of the more interesting work in descriptive morality that I think we've partially been involved in funding is by Oliver Scott Curry, this evolutionary or a cognitive or a moral anthropologist, where he's actually come up with a theory of, just again, descriptive morality, according to which you can kind of reduce all moral practices and judgments down to different practices and judgments that evolved in, or, in order to better subvene human cooperation. I'm not saying that I fully agree that kind of reduction is possible, but if there is that kind of invariance, it's suggestive at least for a certain kind of moral realism, if such you think there is. But in terms of progress, understood as being able to persuade so Robert Nozick once talked about arguments that if you ever heard them and you accepted, if you ever understood their premises and saw the validity of the argument and rejected the argument, your head would explode, right? I can't remember where he wrote that, but that's a Nozick idea. In terms of coming up with knockdown evidence or knockdown arguments for moral realism or moral anti-realism, I'm skeptical that we'll ever come up with knockdown arguments. And I think that's just because in general, I think truth is hard, especially truth about very big questions. It's really hard to get to truth and it's hard to get certainty about the truth. 
And maybe this ties back in again with the kind of animating mindset of Sir John and that sort of carries on with the work that we do here at the foundation. It's that, you know, the attitude of humility before the void, as it were, before the universe or before God is really one that seems best counseled, just given how hard it is to get certainty or even really high degree of justification when it comes to truths about perennial and important matters. And so, you know, what's the role of philosophy in helping us get there or helping us improve our epistemic position? Well, in part, maybe by helping us really take, take scope of what the sense of imaginative or logical possibility might look like, helping us understand you know, conditional claims or connections between different sorts of ideas. But whether we'll get to truth or certainty about truth, we might get to truth, but whether we'll get certainty about it or high degree of justification about it, I personally don't know. And I might be a skeptic in that respect. Yeah, I really like that. I think as I've grown older and talked to more philosophers, I mean, we've hosted over a hundred people on the show. Most of them are really strong philosophers who disagree with each other. And each one is quite compelling. I said to Mark a while ago, I think I've only agreed with one of our guests, but I really enjoyed talking to all of them. So I really, I'm very interested in this idea of pursuit of truth. I think a lot of non-philosophers, when they haven't done a lot of philosophy or haven't engaged with philosophers and they're skeptical, they often feel that we're just spinning our wheels. And you talked about this notion of progress they say, but unless you find certainty, you haven't made progress. So unless you have proven something or disproven something, you haven't made progress. You've made a compelling case within the field of ethics, how progress has been made, but they might say, okay, that's still fairly concrete. We can go out, study certain cultures. We can do an exhaustive anthropological analysis of their customs and try to find common bases and through that argue for some form of objective morality. But what about in even less empirical philosophical fields like metaphysics or cosmology? Maybe there, there is some empiricism going on. So you've got the Large Hadron Collider and you've got some experimentation going on, but it seems like maybe in pure logic, there are going to be areas of philosophy where there's going to be no empirical research happening, or it's very hard to imagine empirical research that will decide the matter. How do we convince the skeptic that there still can be progress in those fields? Yeah, well, I guess I have kind of two reactions. Let me talk about the reaction that is not suggested by the way you set up the question. And that is actually to reject the idea that philosophy is useful only if it is a sort of progressive intellectual endeavor. I mean, I'm not familiar with any strong arguments for that conditional claim that really the value of philosophy lies in its aptness in getting us you know, truth or certainty about truth. So, you know, one, one response is just to sort of reject the presupposition of the skeptic that, look, philosophy is worthwhile only if it gets us towards truth or it gets us closer to truth or something like that. Now, of course, you might reject that and still nonetheless think, look, philosophy does have value in as much as it does get us towards truth. But uh, just to point to some of the other values that philosophizing might help us with, it might just help us become better thinkers, better reasoners, you know, and, and the very old sense of philosophy, right, is a love of wisdom, right? When you look at the various schools of philosophy in the Greek and Roman era, you know, they were concerned the philosophy is a kind of way of life. And a philosophy's value 
was connected with whether it helped its practitioners and its adherents live better. Right. But you know, so philosophy might be more valuable because it makes us just better thinkers, better reasoners. It maybe points us in the direction of really important questions and encourages us and incentivizes us to continually ponder and think about those questions and develop models in response to them. So even if, and not granting this, of course, but even if philosophy doesn't get us, or various areas of philosophy doesn't get us closer to truth in any sense, like we're kind of fixed, we're at a fixed distance, we can't get much closer. I would still argue that, look, philosophy, the, the kinds of habits of mind, the mindset that philosophizing cultivates within us can still be very valuable. Okay, so that's the sort of question of presupposition of the skeptic's argument. But okay, let's just even just say, look, maybe some areas of philosophy do help us get closer towards truth. Let's take metaphysics, actually. Metaphysics, especially like ontology or meta-ontology. You know, when I was at Notre Dame, it was kind of a hotbed of metaphysics and meta-ontology and due to the presence of people like Peter Van Inwag. And it remains so. I should first confess that I have a kind of love-hate relationship with analytic metaphysics, especially when I was in graduate school. My dissertation was in epistemology. So I'm a the S knows the P tribe. That's one of my professors called us. But in talking with my friends and colleagues in, in their name, I would have this kind of experience where sometimes they're talking about, you know, are you a nominalist or are you a Platonist when it comes to, to uh, properties or do you buy into the modal realism of David Lewis? And then you had towards the tail end of my time in graduate school rise of the grounding metaphysical dependence, literature, and analytic metaphysics. So I'd have this almost like duck-rabbit experience, right? The gestalt stuff, where sometimes I would get really into these conversations, and we would go many rounds in a bar over beers talking about, you know, the logic of the grounding relation or the problems with ersatzism about possible worlds. And then I would have this gestalt shift where it's like, is this all just BS? So that's just a kind of background. If there is going to be progress in the sorts of questions that analytic metaphysics uses, I think it's going to be in the practical value for other areas of intellectual endeavor that different concepts and ideologies and theoretical edifices in analytic metaphysics might export to those areas of intellectual endeavor. And so the, the more sharp way to put it is that progress in analytic metaphysics is, and maybe this is kind of betraying like pragmatist bent to a certain extent. It's that the true in analytic metaphysics is really going to be revealed by whether it ends up being useful for other areas of inquiry. So for example, if a certain intellectual project within analytic metaphysics doesn't really yield in the long run anything of practical value, that should make one skeptical of whether it's worthwhile to continue pursuing. So the flip side of that is that where such a research program does yield something of practical value for other areas of endeavor, that's where I think that you could say, oh, we've made progress in analytic metaphysics. You know, one philosopher who is, I think, underrated in the profession is Elijah Milgram at Utah. And he's got this book, it's a kind of collection of different essays called The Great Endarkenment, uh, published 2015, I want to say. And uh, the book talks about a lot of things actually relevant to our conversation and frankly relevant to my thinking as a grant maker. He talks about some of the challenges of interdisciplinary research. He also talks about 
his conception of what metaphysics is. And he uses this phrase, I'm not sure I really understand fully, but it's sort of provocative. He says that metaphysics is a kind of intellectual ergonomics, where the idea is metaphysics helps us design comfortable ways of thinking about certain problems that we want to solve. I guess at the end of the day, if I had to put my cards down, that's what I think of as being the role that metaphysicians can play. This also connects up with something that came up earlier in our conversation. I can't remember which of you mentioned this, but there's this long history of philosophy sort of getting to a certain point where all of a sudden, like a new subdiscipline buds off and then becomes like a science, right? So this happened, you know, it used to be that natural philosophy was the thing, but then you get Newton and then all of a sudden you get the development of physics, right? Or in the early 20th century, you know, people doing what we would call psychology were, you know, people like William James were classified as philosophers, but then psychology, that, that stream of research gets to a certain point where all of a sudden it buds off and leads to the development of a new discipline. Now, I think that where philosophy is at its best is when that kind of thing is happening, when the ferment of ideas within philosophy gets to a point where enough of those ideas coalesce around a research program that becomes some sort of pragmatic import, whether that's empirical or whether that's somewhere else, where those ideas coalesce and then lead to the development of, an, of a new discipline that's got a reasonably coherent set of norms, of evidence and argument and idea construction and is able to sort of carry ours under its own momentum. And, you know, one of the downsides of the professionalization of philosophy as being its own distinct department, and there are upsides to it too. Like I think the way the modern university is structured, you kind of need to carve out departments where philosophers kind of do their thing. But one of the downsides of the professionalization of philosophy is that kind of process of ideas ferment maybe is slowed down a little bit because philosophers now have their own fiefdom, which they're very jealous to protect for understandable reasons. But they, in doing so, they've kind of cut themselves off from one of the main sources of creativity and value. So that's kind of a rambling answer to your question, but I, I think that there are certain assumptions built into the question that maybe I'm not fully on board with. So hopefully I was able to talk through what some of those were and why I might be skeptical about them.